One of the benefits of being a pastoral counselor is I get to have a vantage point, a view into uh, the Christian mind, into the human mind, very human mind, of an average Christian. And one of the phenomena that I see in this work is this thing I'm calling spiritual insecurity. Spiritual insecurity. Now let me just tell you what I mean by that. The definition that I can come up with uh, most quickly is just this. The haunting fear that one has, or probably may, presently may, sin in such a manner as to experience divine abandonment. Let me say it again. The haunting fear, even terror, that one has, or presently may sin in such a manner as to warrant divine abandonment. Or we could say it this way, that one is chronically disappointing to God. And while God may be duty-bound to his word to love you, he really just doesn't like you. (laughs) I know that may sound kind of comical or even absurd, but there is a very real spiritualized wound there, psychic wound, that is very common amongst the average Christian, especially someone who's been in Christ for some time and maybe has experienced some wandering in their faith and some stumbling into sin and has come back uh, and has repented, maybe even made a serious amendment of life, but they still have the the regret. They still have the sense of failure that they carry about with them. Uh, This is common for people who have been divorced and remarried, for example, especially if they've been divorced and remarried more than once. Uh, This is the kind of the woman at the well uh, uh, syndrome, where she had had five husbands. And so, uh, it was a uh, a thing that, by all human standards, that Jesus should not have been even talking to her. There are there are many clergymen and many professing Christians who would have had nothing to do with with the woman at the well because of her her past. After all, she was in she was cohabitating. She was living with a man, and so. Uh, but Jesus didn't have that kind of religious. Um, judgment of her. Uh, He was there as her redeemer, not as her judge. And so it was a very important uh, study in that sense. Um, Let me just turn there real quick, just to remind us of what we're talking about. John chapter 4, this woman A woman of Samaria, it says, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away in the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How do you, being a Jew, ask for a drink from me, being a Samaritan woman? And then John has a parenthetical note, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who said to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is immediately turning her attention away from the fact 
that he is a Jewish man, she is a Samaritan woman, and they don't usually have any communion, uh, let alone the fact that a man talking to a woman alone in the desert at a well would be inappropriate, but a Jew talking to a Samaritan on top of it, uh, an outcast Samaritan. Uh, so Jesus immediately turns her attention away from the social custom, the religious shame, toward himself. If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he had given you living water. Now, Jesus did not say here, if you realized what a loathsome, morally loathsome woman you really are and how repulsive you are to the Ten Commandments and all the law of God and how you would never be allowed into the temple at Jerusalem and how it is that I should not even be talking to you as a Jewish man. I'm defiling myself by even uh, acknowledging your existence. Then I would give you living water. He didn't say that. He didn't shame her. He didn't um, dump on her a bunch of religious morality. Instead, he knows, of course, that he is sufficient for her. That he has come not as a judge, but as a redeemer. He has come to search and seek out that which is lost. And she is truly lost. And so he still tells her, if you knew the gift of God, important there, gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, there's the two things that we have to understand, the gift of God and who it is that says, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So the two things that we need to know to overcome spiritual insecurity is the, that the, the gift of God, what is the gift of God? Well, the gift of God is his son. His son. For God so loved the world that he gave, or the better translation would be, God loves the world in this way that he gave his son. The gift of God. Listen, we have to always be mindful that the Father sent the Son into the world not because we were worthy, not because we had somehow performed in such a manner that we were now worthy of God's response to us by sending the gift of his Son. But the gift of the, of the Son is just that. It's a gift. He is a gift to us. And who it is who says to you, give me a drink, and he will give you living water. So two things at work here. Who is Jesus, and what does he bring to us? Jesus is the gift of the Father, and what does he bring to us? He brings to us living water, to our dry and barren, shame-based souls. He brings us living water. So I just want to encourage you that what we're going to be doing here in the coming weeks, we're going to be talking more about spiritual insecurity. I believe that every Christian at some point in their life experiences this spiritual insecurity. 
if you haven't, if you perhaps it's because you've lived a, a sound moral life, and it may be that you're actually even leaning into your own righteousness at, at that point. And frankly, that can be as dangerous or more dangerous than if you had stumbled many times and were dealing with the guilt of that. Because whether you're leaning into your own righteousness or whether you're obsessing on your own failings, what you're not doing is you're not focusing on the gift of God and you're not focusing on him who, if you ask, will give you living water. Let me just end by saying this. Spiritual insecurity, the spiritualization of what is likely a psychic wound that has been occurred during early development, which is very common. We live in a fallen world. We live with fallen parents. I don't care how clean and sanitized and moral those parents are. Most parents do the best job that they know how to do. Many don't, and many are even evil. But uh, the fact of the matter is none of us comes out of a family, an imperfect family, which all families are, None of us comes out of a a family having not experienced some level of wounding. It's just the nature of a fallen existence. Uh, And if we drag that wounding into our Christian experience uh, and begin to project it onto God, this is what I experienced in my early development. These are the conclusions that I made about myself as a result of that wounding. And this is how I believe that God relates to me then. What we're doing is we're simply spiritualizing a psychic wound. And that takes on great potency when we project it onto God. The only thing worse than suffering a psychic wound in our early development is to believe that God is behind it. That that shame, that toxic shame, that toxic guilt, that haunting sense that you are worthy only of abandonment, that you are worthy only of rejection. Now, there are some theologians that would say, that's right. You are only worthy of rejection. You're only worthy. No, I'm not, uh, I'm not talking about the technical truth that the sinner is at odds with God. I'm talking about those who are in Christ, who have been reconciled to the Son, by the Son, to the Father, who are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, who are now in fellowship with the Father and the Son, who nonetheless continue to suffer as if they were not. Let me say that again. I'm speaking to those who have come into Christ by faith on the basis of grace alone and are united with Christ, have experienced the full benefit of his atonement and are therefore in a permanent, unbreakable, unconditional fellowship with the Father and the Son. Unconditional because it's grounded in the finished work of Christ and not anything you've done and yet still experience a haunting sense that somehow God may love you, but he just doesn't like you. That you were a 
chronic disappointment to him. And that you really, you really just are not his favorite. Why can't you be more like these other good Christians? Why can't you be more like those who haven't failed? Why can't you be more like some celebrity Christian who has at least the appearance of being such a dramatically uh, faithful person? See, those are the kind of spiritual insecurities that keep us from experiencing joy, the joy of our salvation. Let me leave you with this thought. The atonement that we have in Christ is a complete atonement. It is not a partial atonement. It isn't, as some uh, communions like the Roman Catholic Church and others teach, that, that covered your sins prior to baptism, and then once you've sinned after baptism, uh, you're in kind of a probationary period with God. That if you just not ascend after baptism, you'd be experiencing the fullness of God of joy of God's acceptance. But now that you, after baptism, you have sinned, perhaps uh, even in a minor way, or even in an extended gross uh, sin over an extended period of time, and yet have found your way back to the Lord. You have this sense that you're you're kind of on probation now. That God, God is you are in Christ. You you are you are saved. You are, you are in a you are a genuine Christian, but you're you're on something less than the the acceptance that you experienced at conversion. Let me just tell you that's a lie. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And any spiritual insecurity that you experience is not from him. This persuasion is not from him who calls you, as Paul said in Galatians. We must be careful, beloved. That's the whole point of the letter of Galatians. We must be careful to not live out our Christian life over an extended period of time on any other basis other than that which into by which we came into Christ. That is, by a hearing of faith and resting in the finished work of Christ alone as the basis of our acceptance before the Father. And then trust that he is indeed, even now, at work in you, conforming you into the fullness of that image of Christ and that you are accepted in the Beloved that you are a new creation. It was never God who was mad at you. It was us who, before we came to Christ, who were mad at God. You realize that? The hostility between God and man is the hostility from man toward God. In his hostility, man warrants the wrath of God, but the original hostility and the original rebellion was man from man toward God, not God toward man. God instead has graciously, even from the point of the garden with Adam and Eve, promised reconciliation. 
It wasn't a covenant, as some people say. There is no covenant of grace. The covenant of grace is the new covenant. The new covenant Jesus uh, consecrated by his own blood at the cross. Now, the, 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 the fact of the matter is that it's never been, the problem has never lied, laid with God. It was always been with man, toward God. And then yet it is God who has taken the initiative to remove that which is the obstacle between humanity and himself. So you actually are in fellowship with the Father and the Son. You're in fellowship with the triune God who took the initiative and through the miracle of regeneration removed that which was in you, that heart of stone that's described in Ezekiel 36. That heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. He has removed and healed the incurable wound of chronic rebellion. And instead, you are now a child, the beloved child of your Heavenly Father. You are in the family with your elder brother, Jesus Christ. And you share one spirit. And you have fellowship. And that fellowship is not grounded in any failing or stumbling that you commit after baptism. There is more than adequate provision made for that. So spiritual insecurity. Well, we're talking about it now. We'll, probably, we'll talk about it more in the coming uh, episodes as well. But spiritual insecurity is something that's very real for us, and we ought to at least admit it and, and bring it under the light, the healing light of Scripture and allow the Spirit to take it out of us, to remove it from us, to heal us, to put the, uh, the, the salve of his presence on that and to be healed and learn to be able to walk in joy. Everything we do in here and these episodes is designed to help you experience the joy of Christ's salvation, the joy of salvation. Spiritual um, security is yours in Christ because of what Christ has done. And yet joy and assurance do not come automatically. Joy and assurance is something we have to work on. It's our side of the equation. It's something we have to admit. If we, if we lack joy, we have to admit it. And then we have to look into the levels of assurances that we, assurance that we have or don't have and work on those things. Come to be honest, to admit our faults, to admit our weaknesses, and allow us ourselves to confess our faults to one another and pray for each other that we might be healed. Well, enough said on that. Spiritual insecurity. I hope you stick with us, and um, we'll be talking more about it. But I want to make this as an introductory talk. Hopefully this all makes sense to you. Uh, I hope that it touches you in such a way that gives you some hope that if you're living with some haunting fear, that somehow you have or you may yet commit sin in such a manner as to experience divine or warrant divine abandonment to understand that you're not getting that that's not something you're hearing from God. That has something to do with some weakness in your own 
psychological development and that can be healed as only the gospel can. You can go to psychologists and therapists and they will help um, comfort you. They may be able to assure you, but only the gospel can heal you. May the Lord give you his grace and his peace always. Amen.